Welcome to episode number 200 of Destination Linux. Can you believe we made it 200? Not really. I can't, I can't believe we're here for 200 episodes. So get your DLN mugs, take a sip, sit back, relax, and prepare to have the open source and Linux goodness delivered directly into your frontal lobe. My name is Ryan, and with me today are the baby Yoda puppeteers, Noah, Michael, and Jill. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> So we have such a great episode in store for you because, of course, right after this show, if you're watching it live, if you're watching it live right now, after this show, we are going to be doing a game fest with the community to celebrate 200 episodes. We couldn't have done any of this without all of you. So it's our way of saying thanks. We're going to play all kinds of fun games. And Jill's been practicing, I hear, all day <laughs> yesterday, Michael. She was playing games all day. So we're just going to get completely destroyed yep i mean we would anyway just in general but yeah yeah <laughs> naturally but this is our excuse now right yeah. so this Aww. week i've been seeing a ton of articles about the market potential of linux and the growth numbers that they're claiming for linux in the 300 percent range and wondering how is this going to translate for us on the linux desktop and how is it that linux can be so profitable in the cloud and server market, but mm -hmm. be an afterthought on the desktop for so many companies that are involved here. And it really was what's been on my mind this week when I see the numbers like a 300% growth for Linux. Yeah, and also there's a huge popularity with new products and stuff like the Raspberry Pi Foundation and introducing a new form factor for the Raspberry Pi, Pine 64 selling out all kinds of stuff and like within you know days or maybe even hours sometimes. and. Dell and Lenovo joining this huge uh, approach to make new Linux-based hardware. Yeah, we're going to get into that in detail later in the episode. So stick around for that because I think there could be some really good conversation. Obviously, there are companies that are doing very well with Linux. And I think where that can go uh, in the future is just going to be endless if somebody grabs that opportunity up. In addition, we'll be covering community feedback, antivirus software on Linux. Is that is that a thing, antivirus mm -hmm. software on Linux? Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to get into that. And the Google Play Store mm -hmm. containing the highest risk for malware. We have gaming tips, tricks, and software picks. All of this coming up right now on Destination Linux. All right, Noah, so let's kick things off with some community feedback. What did our listeners send in for us this week? Noah writes in. That's a great name. He writes in to say, hey, guys, first, <laughs> nice show. Keep up the great work of promoting open source and Linux to the people. To add to the discussion of proprietary software on Linux, I think driver and core initiatives open source should be the only way. Otherwise, you cannot prevent major security problems. When it comes to using proprietary on Linux, I think Canonical tries to do that with Snaps. However, for things like video games, proprietary is sadly the only way that they will ever be released. It will stay that way for a long time, but that is okay. Do you think there's a need for an open source Steam, which runs on all distros, allows for open, open source or proprietary software, maybe promoting open source, and allows for payments? Best regards, Noah. Well, so there have been a couple of attempts at that, right? A couple of open... Um, game markets and, and so on and so forth. 
I think when you start to look at the, the 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 benefit or detractors to open source, I think it's important to first and foremost remember that there's nothing special about the code being open in and of itself, right? I could take proprietary software that was bad, that had bad security or had bad coding practices, and I can put a different license on the front of it and release it. And it doesn't change the way that the quality of the code, right? And so the quality of the code is not dependent on the software license. However, it's much easier. Uh, like Symantec did back in the 90s to get away with saying that you have more encryption than you actually do if nobody can actually see the source code and see that you're lying to them. This is not possible in open source, right? We have a lot of eyes on the code, and so it tends to work out where we have a higher quality of code and, and more security. But I want to be clear that there's there seems to be a rumor that goes around sometimes that just because it's open source, it's better because it's open source. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily true. There's plenty of open source projects that have one or two developers, and there are plenty of proprietary projects that have a lot more eyes on the code. And so they are going to be more robust, more secure, more featureful, and all of those things. Um, when it comes to gaming, I respectfully disagree that I think gaming is always going to be proprietary. I think that for right now, for the for the for the foreseeable future, I can understand how we get there because game manufacturers and software manufacturers count on the revenue generated from selling those games. And indeed, that comes from those games being licensed such that they know they can predict uh, the cost and, and what they're going to bring in for each one of those games. But I would submit to you that when you start to look at organizations like the Humble Indie Bundle, which have proven time and time again that people are more generous with their money if you give them the opportunity, if you first give and then ask them to support you. And I think that model has found, has been proven both in production as well as speculated to be more uh, a, a more effective way of engaging people and allowing them to support you. And in, in, in a certain way, it comes back to a lot of the same driving factors that support small businesses. A lot of people do business with the smaller business because they like the idea of being taken care of and they like the idea that there's only one place to go and they have direct interaction with the people that are doing that. And we've watched that happen in open source. I just spent three hours... Um, Yesterday or day before, um, watching a this week in Matrix, which is a is a, is a podcast put out by the people who who fund the development of the Matrix protocol and Element, and they talked about what features are coming um, in the in the next few months. Now, I I don't get that with Slack. I don't get that with Discord. I will only get that with an open platform where the project and the timeline is open and the, it's open to discussion and feedback, and people have the opportunity to say these are the features I want and these are the things that I don't want, and then you can see why the developers are making those decisions and then hold them accountable. And I think that's where open source kind of... Kind yeah. Of and I think it's interesting because I hear a lot of people making it's kind of a separate argument. I think you nailed that one. Perfect, Noah. But a lot of people are making the argument, well, if you don't want proprietary software in Linux, but you install Steam, right? And you've mm -hmm. got proprietary software there with Steam. There's a big difference in, yes. in when I'm talking about video games versus my entire computer giving yep. metadata or giving information away, right? If a game manufacturer wants my email address and, and things like that, do I want to give it? No. But also, if they know what I'm doing in a video game is very different than companies who have software using browsers that know what I'm doing when I'm banking, what I'm searching for, if I have medical issues and history and the receipts of my purchases and all of those things. So I put them in two very different categories. When mm -hmm. you're talking about gaming I don't really care as much. I would love for it to be open source, but it's not a huge driver for me that I think we need to, you know, find an alternative to Steam there because who has done more for the gaming on Linux than Steam? Mm, it's absolutely. To, to, 
To me, Ryan, it really is a, I, I compare it a lot to eating a, a meal out, right? If I want, if, if there's a dish I really like and it's my dish and it's, it's a recipe that I care about and I want to make sure it lives for those kind of things, I want the original recipe so that I can make it at home so I can give it out to my kids so that there are no restrictions on those. At the same time, if I go out mm -hmm. to, to a restaurant and I go out to a McDonald's or, or a Burger King or something like that, in that particular case, all I'm really looking for is to satiate my appetite for that one particular meal. Right. And so I kind of look at Steam or Netflix or Hulu, all as a, a, a kind of that that same approach. If I'm looking for something that I'm going to bank on, that I'm going to live on, that I'm going to trust, and I, I expect to be there, things like my email client, my web browser, my operating system, those kind of things are held to a much higher standard and a much right. higher bar than hey, I want to play uh, I want to play a game with a couple of my buddies after we're done here with Destination Linux. So I'm going to install this piece of software. I'm going to use it for a little bit, and then after I'm done, maybe I'll never fire it up again. Exactly. Those are I agree with you. It's it's, it's a totally separate bar. Well, and to the point about um, uh, Steam, um, you can use the Lutris open source game manager for Linux, which is actually a really good example of using both open source software and proprietary to run games, whether the games are free or paid. Yeah. And Lutris and is so good, isn't it? It's, oh my it's gosh. so great. And uh, speaking of pr pr proprietary, I have used lots of proprietary software on Linux for my work and teaching, including Maya and Moto 3D animation software and DaVinci Resolve for editing and motion graphics. And But now that the open source Blender 3D software has become an industry standard, you know, with the help a lot of the Academy Software Foundation in Hollywood promoting the use and, sus and sustainability of the open source ecosystem for the VizFex industry, I am needing to re rely on proprietary software less and less and less, which is just awesome. That is awesome. And, you know, it, it's the, the money funded from the proprietary is, is helping the open source, you know, programs like Blender. Yep. That's a really good point. So actually they take that money and those funds that they gain and actually make the open source product superior to what's out there in a commercial exactly. offering. And then it's obvious where everybody goes. I love yeah. it. Noah has one more thing to add to his email. He writes in and says, P.S. If you're annoyed by GIMP, try Kratom, which is starting mm -hmm. to replace GIMP and is already a standard when it comes to drawing. It basically fuses Photoshop and animate into one project that is part of KDE. So I guess, uh, you know, kind of a different uh, take altogether from, from the first part of his e email, but interesting nonetheless. And Michael, your thoughts on this? Yeah, so for those who are not familiar, I'm actually a professional designer. I've worked with a variety of different software in this space. And if you've listened to the show before, you may have heard that I am somewhat negative towards GIMP. And I actually recently realized something that was, you know, it's a revelation, sort of. And that is, some people are looking at my perspective of GIMP as a something and whether or not they should use GIMP. And that's actually that's actually my my bad essentially because I made it think made it seem like GIMP wasn't reasonably usable, and but my perspective is because as a professional it's not ready for professionals. But ninety five percent of the population aren't professional designers, and GIMP is perfectly fine for those people. In I'm fact, not professional, and you've seen what I've done with it. Is that yeah, a bad for example, sh for sure. Aww. Anyway. <laughs> But it's just interesting because GIMP is actually quite good for 95% of the population. It just doesn't happen to be good enough for professional industry. And that's okay because it's not really aiming for the professional. But 
it is something that I kind of wanted to just say. GIMP is a good solution for people who are, you know, wanting to do, you know, just simple edits and that sort of stuff. It might not be the best for professionals, but that's okay. And Krita is a fantastic option as well for if you want to do painting stuff. It can, it's not actually meant to be a Photoshop alternative, but it can do certain aspects that Photoshop is good. So, I mean, if you, whether, whether you're a professional, if you're a professional, maybe it's not the best option, but if you're not, which is most everybody, GIMP and Krita are fantastic solutions. So check them out. And I think that there's a lot of potential in them right now, especially with like GIMP 3.0 coming soon. Well, soon ish. And there's, there's a lot of stuff that's coming into it. I talked about it on a, on a, just this week on this week in Linux, there's so much cool stuff coming in GIMP and I'm excited for it. Yeah, and speaking of that, Michael, I have all I have moved all my students onto Krita for that reason to get them off the Adobe suite. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Krita is quite good, and space, yeah. especially for the painting aspects, it's just it's fantastic. Yes. And it's got good two D animation as well. Mm-hmm. We love hearing from our worldwide community. We want you. What we want you to do is get the official DLN mug, fill it with some coffee, sit down at your nearest stool, and send us an email. You can send those emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. So, Michael, you remember last week where uh, I was going to give out the information on the big announcement and you were like, no, we have to wait till we're live. Episode 200. Don't tell anybody. For episode. Yeah, you remember, yeah. You remember I, that I, conversation? I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, a little bit. Well, well, it's episode 200. <laughs> oh, so right. am I allowed to finally tell people you are, what's going you, on here? I will give you permission this one time. Feel free to do it, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Here we go. <laughs> so, ELN is expanding with a brand new podcast. Hello, and welcome to the GameSphere podcast, a show produced by the Destination Linux Network. I'm Chris Ware, and over the course of this show, I'll cover topics like gaming news, video game reviews, project spotlights, looking back at older games, as well as looking forward to new ones. I'll also be covering more substantive aspects to gaming, such as what cloud gaming has to offer end users, as well as how it fits within our wider ethos around technology and ethical software. Linux has been my main gaming platform since 2006, and I've seen firsthand just how far gaming on the platform has evolved since then. However, Linux gamers and non-Linux gamers alike will be able to enjoy this show. You can catch all that and more every week on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Connect the rest of the network at destinationlinux.network. I've been Chris Ware, and you've been awesome. The new podcast is going to be called Gamesphere. Now, this is something that the community has been asking for. We actually had posts just last week where someone was like, hey, we need my son listens to all your podcasts. He's learning all this stuff about Linux, but I want him to also understand the gaming aspects and what's capable in Linux. And do you have a show that covers that? And we were like, yes, but wait, because Michael won't let me tell you yet. Um, (laughs) But now we can. So Gamesphere is the new (laughs) podcast out there. And perhaps even more exciting than that is who's going to be hosting, which is Noah. No, I'm teasing because Noah would be terrible <laughs> at games. Um, the, the new host is Chris Weir. So all of those hey. in the Linux community are probably already familiar with Chris Weir's work. He is uh, creates a lot of video content, has a ton of subscribers, which are all now part of the DLN family. So we welcome them all to his channels and he will be hosting Gamesphere on the Destination Linux network. So go to your podcast, the 
intro it's not an intro episode i guess it's what are you a welcome episode you would yeah, say it's like a promo thing it's it's already if you you'll find it in whatever podcast app you use because it's in all the directories and stuff like that so it's in itunes directory spotify etc amazon music whatever so just go and search it in your podcast app and you'll find it there it, it, it right the first episode has not been launched yet that's coming soon but it will it is there and so you'll see that you'll be able to listen to the promo th- and it's just kind of, it's kind of interesting because i just now realized that we named the show accidentally with a rhyme it's game sphere with chris weir oh wow wow look at that we meant to do that shut up oh yeah right right i didn't i didn't just realize that we was totally on purpose (laughs) so welcome chris to the dln family we're so happy to have you and your subscribers joining us and i was listening to the promo i even got a little hint into the first episode he has such a unique take on the gaming industry from all aspects from the old to the new games and he's got that British accent, so you just yep. want to listen, you know? That, <laughs> exactly. that kind of helps. Yeah, there you go. Makes an improvement automatically. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud native apps. With app platform, listen, here's the thing. DigitalOcean has been on the cutting edge since day one. They were the first VPS to offer all SSDs. When nobody else was doing that, they were doing it. Now SSDs are standard, nobody thinks of it, but DigitalOcean, they were there first. This app platform is the next way to iterate. Everybody knows how to set up a LAM stack. Everybody knows that you can use DigitalOcean's one click deploys to get those to work. What their app platform allows them to do is for let, let's DigitalOcean do the heavy lifting. You just decide what you need. Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, etc. DigitalOcean with their app platform will run all of those apps on their own infrastructure so their costs are significantly lower with other products. Plus, they built this app pl- platform on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing smoother migration paths so that you can take control of your infrastructure and get it set up. And of course, the folks at DigitalOcean, they love that you are here with us today on Sunday, uh, hanging out with us as we record this episode of Destination Linux. And they want to give you a special treat for doing that. If you go to do.co slash DLN, that address again is do.co slash DLN. It says to DigitalOcean, hey, I learned about this from the folks uh, on 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 Destination Linux, and I want $100. And DigitalOcean is going to go say, if you're friends with with uh, the guys over Destination Linux, then we're going to give you $100. And they're going to give you $100 credit to get started on their app platform or anything else you want to use on DigitalOcean. Again, you can get started by going to do.co slash DLN. Take that $100 credit. Go spin up a couple of, uh, of uh, monster servers for a month or a bunch of servers for, for two or three months. But in either way, make sure to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. You. Yeah. So let's talk about something that's an interesting conversation we've had about, like in the community, the antivirus aspects of Linux. So is it time for an antivirus software on Linux? When a new malware or virus hits Windows, nobody blinks an eye. It's barely newsworthy. And people are like, oh, yeah, it happened again, whatever. But when it (laughs) hits a Linux system, the whole world just... Well, I guess mostly the (laughs) so-called tech journalists just go mad and just go crazy like... Linux is so dangerous, uh, but it really, it's just Even if ridiculous. you find out it's been patched like yeah. two weeks ago, even yeah. if it, you have to have like direct access to the machine and already have it apart <laughs> yep. to, to exploit it, it just hits all the headlines like, oh my gosh, Linux has a virus. No, yeah, right. exactly. It's, it's like, down. it's a huge problem, except it's already been fixed and it's not really that big of a problem in the first place. You know, the, they'll be still actually say fair, stuff like it's We like, kind of do that to ourselves with the whole... Linux can't get viruses. That's well, true. That's, so, fair. That's so fair. People shouldn't say that. Say it can't ever. Does it execute code? Sure. Yes. Then it can be compromised. <laughs> 
But the right. most of the time, it's the funny thing is, is that they say like these headlines are like huge threats, but they're they're also like attack vectors. Put maybe, and most of the time they're not even attack vectors. They're mostly like, for example, they'll be like, "There's this huge hole in security, but you'll actually need to have physical access to utilize it." So it's not that bad, really. But we're gonna act like it is. And but at the same time, there are uh, already a lot of antivirus software on Linux. There's you know there's Clam AV, there's uh, Bitdefender's Gravity Zone, there's ESET. They have their own. Even Avast has a, a version for Linux and that stuff. So are these options important? Are there are there is even a reason to have antivirus on Linux? What are your experiences and that kind of stuff? So let's uh, start start with Ryan. What do you think is 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 antiviruses necessary in the Linux world? Well, I think what Noah said is one of the big highlights I want to make in this topic is that we as a community, and I see this in distros, by the way, when they're talking about their distro, will say, want to not get viruses? Come to Linux or you know, utilize this. What are some of the advantages using Linux? You can't get viruses. I've seen that wording exactly. And that's a mistake. I mean, yes, it's there are, there are reasons why it's less likely or more difficult, or we can create YouTube videos where we go download all the Windows viruses and try to execute them and they do nothing in Linux. And that's a lot of fun. And there are there is truth in the fact that certainly Linux is more locked down in general by nature. But to, to act like it can't get viruses is wrong. And it's a big threat target now. This is what one of the things that I see a lot is people go, the reason why Linux has no viruses for it or not very many is because it's a small attack threat because it's such a small part of the desktop. But you're talking about something that nearly every company, government, military, the space program, all of these huge, massive targets, Microsoft, Amazon, all of them utilize this stuff behind the scenes. So there is probably you could make the claim equal to, in some cases, if not more, considering it runs the entire cloud, of a threat opportunity for people to want to write viruses, certain types of viruses, certainly government threats and things for Linux. So I think it is a big target. You do hear nobody, and I mean nobody, at least in my four years, talking about, hey, once you're done with that install, make sure you set up an antivirus, a good antivirus or malware or software program. It just never has come up once. And I think we should be to answer your question, Michael, encouraging people to at least install things like ClamAV uh, and have antivirus because I think the attack vector is becoming, the attack potential, the pot, the honeypot is becoming so large in Linux that if somebody could get something to spread, it could do so much damage that we should be doing this along with firewalls and other things, of course. What, what do you think, Noah? I think that both of the extremes are false. I start from the premise that Linux in general is a more secure operating system. And the people that say, well, it's just it, it just code is code. And so it could be executed on Linux. It could be executed on Windows. That's not true. It, it, there are a, a variety of different things that stop malicious code from being executed on Linux. We had privilege, privilege escalation inside of Linux before it was even a dirty thought in Microsoft's head, right? Then now that that now that they've gotten there, we've moved entirely on to things like SE Linux and containerization and and and, and virtualization and all of the other things that add um, extra layers of security between our potential attackers and 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 and, and the target. I, I think that the appropriate response 
to newfound attacks and, and new threat vectors is to seal those threat vectors and, and prevent those attacks, not necessarily to have one piece of software that runs on the machine and we artificially trust that it is the arbiter of what's good and bad. I've watched antivirus, very well-respected, very well-known, tens of thousands of dollars per year for the subscription fee kind of uh, security apparatus that, that, that a lot of businesses run. I've seen those uh, fall flat on their face and and allow a user to click on a specific link that we know uh, has malicious code and then install that piece of software that then generates cryptoware or something like that. And, and I've watched those situations to, to unfold only to ask myself, how effective is really an antivirus software? And so I think from the same perspective that I tell people when, when I'm teaching them about firearms, that the, the best safety on the firearm is the one that's in between your ears. The best way to avoid malicious code is to understand what you're doing to your system. Don't copy and paste the, those, those, the, the terminal commands off of some website that you found. Don't just add some random PPA, uh, but understand what the code is doing and understand the responsible way to go about entering into the community and say, is this a safe thing to do for my computer? That's a far better recipe for success in keeping your machine safe, understanding the technology than it is just relying on a piece of software and saying, okay, I'll install this and then it'll keep me safe from viruses. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, so I actually had read an article not too long ago that interviewed Red Hat, Canonical, and System76 about this very issue and the need for antivirus software on Linux. And they actually all said, um, as long as you keep Linux patched and updated, they weren't worrying about it hmm. um, because you know they're on top of it and they know their ecosystems and what they need uh, to keep updated. And you know because of Linux is so diverse. Because the viruses have to attack a specific software with specific instruction to be effective, it's harder to penetrate, unlike Windows, which is very monolithic. You know, this it can happen, but it has to be a very specific script with a very specific application. Right. And, you know, every, every company is running different software and hundreds of different software in concert. So you have to have to get that, you know, you have to get the... Um, ingredients just right right <laughs> well attack. i'll go on record and say i disagree with red hat system 76 of them yeah. uh, i may be proven wrong but i think the difference is the type of attacks that are going to be and i'm not saying an yeah, antivirus can solve too. it i think the type of yeah. attacks that are coming the the sophistication from the governments and then their code that they're using to you know disrupt another government getting out into the open and people utilizing it I think the targets and the sophistication of these things is getting to the point where, you know, most antivirus only works off of generally signatures or the behavioral characteristics of a program to determine, hey, that's doing something it shouldn't do, or they've the virus is already out there and they've picked up certain signatures they know the virus does. And that is how these antivirus softwares kind of detect what's going on. And I just can't see any harm in yes. having people install these tools just in case something like that happens. And we've seen the damage that these programs are causing during COVID crisis and everything else, hospitals being taken down, servers going down for days at a time. This is a big issue and I just don't see the harm in having one installed on your Linux machine. Yeah, yeah. I feel the same way actually. <laughs> and, um, you know, <laughs> it can't hurt for enterprise, you know, to install an antivirus program on Linux, definitely. Right. Especially, and I was thinking about this a few days ago, especially when they are using older hardened Linux kernels that can't be updated easily. We, we need, you know, you need that security and that antivirus software to 
protect you from attacks. And if you look at what has happened to security on our Linux routers uh, locally, they use older kernels that need to be updated manually. And the average user (laughs) really doesn't know how to do this. But simply changing the admin password can prevent brute force attacks. Yep, good point. I think there's a, I think there's a good point about, especially with the enterprise people. Of course, I think yeah. that having antivirus or anti malware and all that stuff would make the most sense for them. But in terms of like the, you know, the average user, I think there there's the I think there's an interesting balance between the fact that you know Red Hat and Canonical and System seventy six are talking about how they're basically the antivirus for you, is essentially what they're talking about. But they're more so, they're mostly talking about the you know, the vulnerabilities and security issues that are found that are immediately pe- like fixed almost immediately anyway. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, by the time we hear about a public issue with Linux, they've already fixed it because there's that, uh, you know, the de- declaration structure of making sure these things are, atta- are addressed very quickly. Before they're announced. Yeah. Or even yeah. before they're announced. Yeah. And, but in terms of, I think that that's what they're referring to. But in re- regards to like the issue with an antivirus is typically because of Windows legacy of having like drive by vir- virus infections and stuff. Whereas that wouldn't be uh, anything related to what Canonical and Red Hat and System76 would be doing because those are not vulnerabilities necessarily. Those are just people accidentally installing something that they didn't know was a problem. And when the, and for the most part, it's very difficult to do that in Linux because you actually have to not just download something. You have to give it access to be able to execute. You have to manually activate it and stuff like that. So the threat factor is very, very low in comparison, but it's still there. So I think that it is definitely a reasonable thing to say. If someone wants to have an antivirus, yeah, feel free. There's no there's no real negative in it. And especially the sense that people argue like, would an antivirus be using a lot of resources for your system? Well, luckily, Linux is like tenth the percent, like tenth the amount of resources in the first place. So you mm-hmm. you'd have to have an, an antivirus and anti malware and all that stuff, and having all that run, you're still like half the amount of resources that Windows is using, regardless. So it sh- it shouldn't be that that big of an issue anyway. And when we talk about market share of an OS, we're often presented with data from scarcely collected metrics from websites some metadata from various distros, and a lot of really best guesses. But what you rarely hear people talk about is the market share as a financial growth analysis. Fortune Business Insights published an analysis stating the global Linux operating system market size is projected to reach $15.64 billion by the end of 2027. Billion with a B. <laughs> Billion. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And in 2019, it was estimated to be worth $3.89 billion. So by 2027, they're estimated a 300% increase. <laughs> That's amazing. And this is amazing. And, you know, the... The, the article states about how the, the growth is driven currently by lots of different companies, including Amazon, Arch Linux, which that was interesting. I was surprised to, to see <laughs> that one in there, honestly. I know. Not that it's not I huge was... and big, but I was surprised they specifically called out Arch in the article. I know. Same here. And yeah. Canonical, of course. They're at the top. Clear Center, Debian Elementary, and Slackware. I was happy Slackware Linux got a shout out as there well. And of course, IBM Corporation with Red Hat and many others. And, you know, the reasons for the growth is, you know, the vertical increase 
and adoption of the cloud platforms, the presence of several large-scale companies operating across the world, the increasing investment in the adoption of cloud-based applications derived through Linux OS, and the use of Linux OS by major companies such as Facebook <laughs> will create several opportunities Yuck. for market growth. Yuck. <laughs> Gross. You, you know, yeah. I cringed when I had to put that in the article. Yeah. Like, yeah. Can yeah. we talk about anybody else is using Linux? Right. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know. Oh, well, we do have Google. <laughs> no. Gross. <Yay. laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to IBM and Red Hat. There, we go. there you go. So, yeah, the rumors that Linux isn't profitable were squashed in large part by IBM's historic $34 billion purchase of Red Hat. But what we're seeing is literally just the beginning of what Linux is capable of. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, I think when you when you look at how much amazing. Linux has grown just in the four years I've been in it, it's it's incredible to see. Like I used to wear the shirts, you know, all the Linux shirts, because mm -hmm. you guys know I pretty much dress like a, a Linux billboard. Yay. And people would be like, "What's Linux? What is that?" That's <laughs> when I first started. That literally would be the reaction. Like, cool shirt. What is that? Now I'll wear that and they're like, yeah, I run Linux too. I had a random person at like uh, just a, a clothing shop where I was, you know, doing the husband thing where you just follow behind your wife while she's looking at clothes. And, and the clerk was like, I love Linux. And I'm like, really? So we sat there and I got to talk about Linux while my wife shopped. So it, it's just amazing that people are really, it, it's becoming so recognizable to so many people. And when I think about the many people out there who are looking for a job right now or love using Linux, but haven't figured out how to turn it into a career. When I see news like this and the potential money that's involved in Linux, I think what an amazing opportunity for all of us who've been kind of sticking with Linux from the beginning as yeah. it's been growing to, to now capitalize on that knowledge that you've gained. Because when you start becoming a Linux user, and I could say this firsthand, I thought I knew computers really well. I thought I knew an operating system inside and out. And then I joined Linux and realized I didn't know nothing about <laughs> the operating system like I thought. So, uh, you know, you just get a, you have a whole new level of use of understanding of how a computer and operating system interact when you join Linux. And I think that gives a lot of people in the Linux community a leg up to start taking advantage of this growth that's happening uh, potentially for their career in the future, which is awesome, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there there actually is a reason why the 500 top supercomputers in the world run Linux. That's a no-brainer. Yes, <laughs> so, absolutely. And, you know, there's a really good question here. Whether there is anyone who will be able to find a way to turn the desktop Linux experience into a commercial mainstream success without selling itself out to proprietary offerings. <laughs> I, I would like to get your take on this, Noah, because I think we're kind of similar in this way. Why can't anybody seem to, or why do some of the people who speak for some of these companies act like there's just no money to be made on the desktop when you have two mm -hmm. trillion dollar companies today that made most of their money or start off of the desktop? There has to be some money here, right? Those I would I would I would submit to you that those companies didn't make their money off the desktop. They made their money off of providing a way for people to get a job done. And in 2020, the way that people wish to get the job done is different than the way that people wish to get the job done back in, let's say, 1995. People no longer believe that they have to sit in front at a desk in an office in a cubicle with a monitor in front of their desks with their hands curved like they're reaching apples right 
right? The same thing we we're taught in keyboarding mm -hmm. class. They don't have to do that anymore. Nowadays, you can pick up a small computer that's no bigger than your wallet and you carry it around with you on your side. And that device from the ground up is really designed uh, for you. And so I think where we're skating towards is a world in which the, 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 the individual goes into their cell phone store or a uh, large major big box electronic store. And they pick up one of two or three uh, big box major name manufacturer pieces of devices. And those devices then uh, have all of the software and all of the apps that people need. And if, if we watched what Apple said last week when they announced their universal apps, essentially they're ripping off snap packages, right? That's the idea that they're going to be able to run code on ARM. They're going to be able to run code on Intel, but it's this one single package. And so it doesn't matter where you are. You just install this universal app and then and this is going to exist, right? And this technology existed in Linux first. So the, 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 the fundamental question is, why doesn't it take off in Linux? And why does it always take off when some proprietary company company does a crappy knockoff of it. And I, I think the reason uh -huh. to that is because people have put trust in Microsoft and in Apple and in Google to be the technology provider to help them get the task done. Back in 1995, it wasn't that anybody preferred Windows or Mac OS over to anything else. It was just the tool that was available to get the job done. Today, that tool is primarily iOS or Android. And so I think when we, from the desktop side, when we start looking at to how can we provide a valuable service or a valuable product to an end user, I think the answer to that is we have to make the experience on desktop Linux better than the experience that you would get from an iOS or Android device. But I would tell you that for most people that have to work, that are doing word processing, sending emails, doing some spreadsheets, some presentations, and a lot of web browser work, maybe a little bit of terminal stuff here and there, Linux is a better choice for those people than a mobile operating system. And, and I think because Apple last week has now forced every software manufacturer to essentially, if they don't have a code base that can be easily ported to ARM or this universal soft, uh, this universal packaging format, they're going to have to reinvent from the scratch. And now is the time where I think that all of us should start coming together and saying, okay, we support things like Electron because Electron is the way to get these apps on top of Linux. And I think if we did that, and I think if we support these manufacturers and the software man the software developers to get this the software available to run on Linux, then I think we have the opportunity to say, okay, now Linux on the desktop, uh, you know, should be a should be a stronger focus. But I think if you look at what Microsoft, Apple, Linux, every company really is doing this. They're moving away from a computer that they sell to a person that has software on it and more towards software as a service. Microsoft is doing this. Apple is doing this. Even Linux is doing this. I think that's the direction technology is going and we have to be very careful. Yeah. Yeah. Really good point, Noah. Yeah. And, you know, Canonical is actually focusing more on putting uh, money into the Ubuntu desktop now because of AI and development. They see mm -hmm. that that growth, you know, because of the cloud. So they're, you know, as as we know, they're on Lenovo machines and ah, lots of different computers in between. <laughs> yeah, they're getting they have tons of certification out there, although going through the certification page is painful. Mm -hmm. I really hope they update that. But it's still nice that it's it's out there and there's a lot of computers now like from System76, Dell, Lenovo that you can pick up with Linux right on it. And that's a change. We talked last week about Raspberry yes. Pi being in targets, you know, and this is a change. This is something where we're getting Linux into people's homes. Uh, I talked about the Jetson AI from NVIDIA, you know, these types of mm -hmm. devices are getting Linux into the mainstream. I do think there is software as a service is going to hit this threshold where, mm -hmm. you know, people are, it, it's kind of like all of these services. There was a point where 
I was really excited about all these monthly services, maybe 10, 15 years ago, where it was like, man, I can get these great product or they'll send me a free product and I get their service and it's just $10 a month. But at some point I looked at my bank account and I had like 10 of these <laughs> different services and I'm like, I can't afford this anymore. So there, there is a breaking point where you start having so many monthly services. I'm going to have office as a service. I'm going to have windows as a service. I'm going to have, you know, my browser as a service. I'm going to like that. It gets to the point where you just can't even afford it or to be on it. And that's going to create a backlash where people are going to come right back, slingshot back to, I want to own my stuff. I want to have it on my desk again. Now that swing could take 10 mm. years or more to happen. But if you look at the industry, when we went from mainframes to personal computers and all this stuff, the swing has happened in historically over and over again. Yeah, I yeah, think it's, an, it's very interesting. And I do think that it's worth noting that this the the enterprise and like a lot of people don't realize that Linux is dominant on everything but the desktop. Every mm -hmm. top 500 supercomputer is Linux. Like, you know, Android is powered by Linux uh, and it's the most popular used phones structure. And then you have all the different like the Internet is like 85 percent Linux based and stuff like that. So we have an, an exist like the, the market share of Linux is already the dominant force, except for on the desktop and like the laptop level. And that is something I think is interesting that will happen when it will happen. I don't know. But you mentioned Android, Michael. And well, I have another bone to pick with Android. I mean, it just happens to be the <laughs> fact that it's based on Linux, not because it's the best example of I, it. <laughs> I think it's the worst example of Linux because it holds nothing true to what we expect in Linux. But yes, I guess there is some base of Linux in it. So in the news this week, turns out Android Play Store is the number one source of malware for Android users, which I thought was interesting yes, because that I would have right, guessed. Right too. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I would have guessed that it's all the sideloading of apps because that's one of the unique things about Android, right? You could sideload apps. You can use a third-party app store. There's just a lot more access and user control, especially if you unlock your phone for going to malicious sites or different themes or game stores. But a recent study by Norton LifeLock went to uncover the mystery by studying 12 million Android devices. So this is not some small study where somebody said, hey, I had four phones and I've got most of my, this is 12 million devices over a period of four months. They looked at more than 34 million APKs or Android application installs for 7.9 million unique apps. So again, huge study. They found that between 10 and 24% of the apps they analyzed could be described as malicious or unwanted applications. 67% of the malicious apps installs researchers identified came from, 67% of them came from the Google Play Store. Um, so based on the size of the market and sheer quantity of apps, they did point out that you're still more than likely to get a virus from, because you only have maybe 20 apps in these third-party app stores or something from one of those. As far as the quantity of malicious software out there, the vast majority is sitting in the Google Play Store. So between Android's mystery patching system, where you're dependent upon the manufacturer of the phone and or carrier to determine if you get an update to your device, uh, the privacy invasion, all of this stuff. What does Android do here to fix this issue is the question I actually wanted to pose because a lot of people are saying, you know, if they would just go with that closed garden model like Apple has, this problem could be resolved. Apple has a much better track record of keeping their devices up to date, which we're big on. We just talked about the importance of keeping your Linux distro up to date and patched. This doesn't happen in Android. What's the solution? 
I mean, it's an interesting problem because they're like when people talk about the I think the biggest issue with Android is the fragmentation and that the, the malware stuff is because so many people are using old versions of Android that there's more incentive to create all this malware because they can attack these devices because people aren't updating their system and not because they don't want to or care or anything like that, because there's an automatic system structure for updates. But you also have to deal with the fact that Google has to do an update like Samsung or HTC or Motorola or whatever. You got to get them to do an update. And then you also got to get it to go to the carriers and the carriers can add all their nonsense bloatware garbage to do an update. And then you have all of these different things. And so you just have a thing where the companies just stop doing updates. And they even had a thing where Google said, We've got a commitment from all these companies that there's going to have updates for two years. Yay? Two years? I spent $1,000 on a phone and I get updates for two years? Great. What a deal. And like they have that situation. And I think the problem mostly with these, like all this malware and all these issues with the malicious apps is because these people are trying to bypass issues with the fact that they're not getting updates and they're trying to get application support and they can't get the application support and all this other stuff. And I don't know. I don't know how Google can really fix this problem, but I think that's the biggest issue they need to address because once they're, if mm-hmm. the, you know, the whole idea of like update your system, patch your system, all those things, where in the Android world, you necess- you can't necessarily do that all the time, or some cases ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think Google's in a world of trouble here. When you look at the investigations that are going into them, of course, um, from the different government entities, and now all the lawsuits that are popping up. You know, one of the ones most recently was that Android users are now suing Google because the fact that they're using your data limits for your cell service to send the data back to Google, send your data where you're at, your location and everything. And they said that uh, it was 16 times an hour using up to 4.4 megabytes per day or 130 megabytes per month in the lawsuit that they're alleging that Google is using your cellular data to send services and things back. When you couple it, with the amount of private information you keep on your phone, you couple it with their lack of update system, you couple it with Apple finally coming in and releasing devices out there that are inexpensive, uh, like their new SE. So that was one of the big reasons why a lot of people you know, liked uh, or went with Android is the cost of Apple was so prohibitive. I think Google's in trouble as the second one here, which may open up as someone in the YouTube chat mentioned, the doors for a new OS, hopefully to come in that may be actually Linux-based, true Linux-based, true Linux philosophies in here to do some work. It would be nice to see Palm Pre come back. Can I get an amen? Yes, yes. absolutely. Amen. <laughs> Palm Pre. Bring back WebOS. Palm Pixie. Come on, HP. WebOS. Bring it. Bring yeah. bring Palm Pre back. They haven't please. given up the brand yet. They might be onto something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're still doing. They're doing good at LG on the big screens. You can't really. Oh, it's LG. It's LG. Yeah. I thought it was HP. Yeah, LG. Yeah, you can't really tell that well in this in the the screen right now. But right right here, that's my uh, Palm Pre Plus. Like still, just, you know, you, you still keep glory. it there. I, yeah. I'm jealous of that actually because it was one of the greatest alternative operating systems yes. for phone ever released, yeah. and it's oh. sad that it doesn't exist anymore. I'm, so I'm still a huge fan it. of it. <laughs> oh, you like WebOS too? Oh, oh, I have every WebOS phone, including the Pixie, the <laughs> Pre 1, the Pre 2, Pre 3. I have an HP touchpad behind me that I still use for yeah. playing music because I had the best sound system in it as well <laughs> for yeah. a tablet. I mean, the, but, the, um, everybody I, you know, loves I was, the I was actually making, 
I know I was making apps in it. I made a Linux Chicks of Los Angeles app for it. And uh, that's awesome. You know what? I just figured out how we could monetize Destination Linux more. We talked about the Linux desktop, but what about our podcast? We sell $15 a piece tickets for people to come tour Jill's house and see all of these devices. Anybody on it? Yeah, I think yeah, we the, Jill, the Jill Museum is where you're just going to find all the ton, all the awesome collection that Jill has. <laughs> right. There you go. Yeah. This episode brought to you by Bitwarden. Great password manager that we use and trust is Bitwarden. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords and adding phrase, uh, passphrases into fingerprint security and all this, so much more to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your free account. Bitwarden is a great password manager, and I use and trust it. I've been using it for many years, and one of the reasons I switched to it was because I found out that it was 100% open source software. And it also lets you to do uh, self-hosting if you'd like to do that. Uh, but the, one of the things that I loved about it when I first found it is in addition to the open source aspects, they also do security audits and so much more. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your free account and make the smart move like many from the community have and get your free account or get that $10 per year premium edition because it's definitely worth it. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. So let's get into our gaming section. And I know what everybody who is here watching us live for our 200th episode, we're streaming on YouTube, we're streaming on Twitch out here, is excited for. And that is Game Fest happening at 4 p.m. Eastern today. So we're going to play some awesome games like Zenotic. Yeah. We're going to play yes. Super Tux Cart. <laughs> we're going to play Among Us and we're going to see who is the sneakiest liar amongst the DL crew. I'm interested <laughs> in this one. I'm wondering how good Noah's going to be at this. You know, he's a little shady over there. <laughs> But the game I want to talk about this week before we get into Game Fest is Flight Gear. So even people who claim, like Noah, that they don't play video games, they do. Uh, they get caught red-handed with some very great simulators out there. Like, it's not a video game, it's a simulator. <laughs> uh, and one of the most popular simulators is a flight sim. And the good news is there is a very advanced flight sim that is open source that runs natively on Linux called Flight Gear that you can get started in. Being open source, the file formats are easily accessible, support standard 3D model formats, and much of the simulator configuration is controlled through the XML-based ASCII files. You can write third-party extensions for this. Of course, you don't have to. You can just get in there and start playing and, and do these flight sims, but there's so much mod capability within this game, which is what a lot of people love about sims, is being able to mod and add different airplanes and different fields and things in there. So Flight Gear is an attractive option for private, commercial, research, or hobby projects. So even commercial training and things could be done with this. They have flight okay. dynamic models, extensive and accurate world scenery database. So you're not just flying over random polygons. They're actually taking real world environments like 20,000 real airports that you mm -hmm. can go land in with the full scenery there. Accurate time and day modeling. You can fly the 1903 right flyer a 747 cool. and a320 various military jets i know that's what noah would get into immediately you you would skip the whole wright brothers plane and go right for an f-16 when you know <laughs> right you <laughs> i know i know you are uh, multiple display support which is a must in a simulator because you want to get wrapped in monitors right and feel yes. like you're in the cockpit of a plane so if you're interesting interested in a good sim you don't have to dual boot. Just grab yourself a copy of Flight Gear, get the game, and get your sim on. 
Well, I finally got my Cessna up in the air and flying. <laughs> really? Folks, you got to read the tutorials. I have played with sight. <laughs> I have played with flight sims before, but uh, uh, it, it had been a while. But I did finally right. get a Cessna up and launched from my local airport. And um, but what was awesome is it works beautifully spanning my three big monitors, my 43 yeah. inch center monitor, and then then two 30 inch monitors and portrait on the sides. And it and it is incredibly immersive and wonderful. <laughs> nice. I'm sorry, did you say 43 inch monitor yes. in the middle? IPS okay. Acer monitor. Yeah. Yes. All right. <laughs> my monitor suddenly feels like it's just a, a little tiny box. Uh, Ryan's <laughs> like, are you challenging me right now? Right. No, I'm going to have to Gonna have to make a big order now to compete with Jill's hardware there. <laughs> 43 inch. That's awesome. So you've been playing this game. Have you ever played Microsoft Flight Sim? I kind of think that's the standard yeah. a lot of people talk about. Yeah. How would you compare the two? You know, it's been a long time since I played the Microsoft one. It was a little easier to set up. Right. But but this is getting there. I mean, I actually played uh, Flight Gear uh, years ago. And it was, you know, it's really improved. It's come a long way since That's then. Awesome so it, it's a little closer than, than to the Microsoft one now in ease of use. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, because a lot of times when I'm playing those games, I just want to take off. I don't even care about landing. I just want to yeah. see it take off. Yes. Fly a little bit. See the scene. And then land, I'll just crash. <laughs> I'll crash my way into the ground or parachute out. <laughs> If you're working in the terminal, then you don't want to be slowed down by opening GUI apps to solve simple tasks. Some of the things you might think you need might be you have to go to web UI to check out Google Calendar. Uh, turns out you don't. You can actually type Cal. It's a CLI application. It's a nice calendar to show you the current calendar of the month. If you want a different month, just type Cal in the name of the month that you wish to view. For example, Cal space deck space 2020 will give me the calendar for December of 2020. So next time you're listening to Destination Linux and Michael talks about the next game day that's coming up and you say to yourself, which Sunday is that specifically? You'll now have a CLI tool that you can use to determine that. Nice. And our software spotlight this week is Gitbook. Gitbook can, is, a, is a really interesting piece of software that are in service that allows you to create uh, books, public documentation, enterprise manuals, a thesis, research papers, all kinds of stuff. It has a ton of features like Markdown, WYSIWYG support, uh, rich embedding, uh, comments, real-time collaborations, which is a fantastic thing, especially these days, uh, infinite history, GitHub sync, and personal branding options. Uh, while it also, it did start with as an open source project and it runs inside of a C, uh, CLI, it's now a web-based service that has integrations with all sorts of stuff like GitHub and intercom stuff and Slack. It's a, it's, it's a documentation creation ca capabilities are, it's just yeah. so impressive that what you can do with this self, this software. And while it isn't clear if they've remained open source with their web platform or not, they do make the service completely free for all open source projects and any nonprofit organizations. For example, an open source project that moved to GitHub or GitBook, sorry, that moved to GitBook is a uh, rocket chat. Then rocket chat is an alternative to Slack yeah, I was playing with Gitbook this week. Uh, I'd come across it and I started, I have a lot of, in, in on my webpage, Dosky Community, I have a lot of what I call the area of my page called the brain dump, where it's a lot of tutorials and things I've learned over time and random documentation. And so when I looked at Gitbook, I started, I just wanted to set one up and start putting some of that stuff in there to see how well it would flow. It's so easy to set up. It's so easy to edit the collaboration in real time, infinite history and things like that make it fantastic. And as somebody who contributes to, or tries to contribute to the documentation of distributions out there, let me tell you, it is one of the most painful experiences on the planet. 
they these these various distributions put their documentation in these oddball tools nobody ever uses anymore. They're weird to edit. They're impossible to set up. They try to run it through like software uh, updates, you know, through Git repositories and other things. Yeah. And you're supposed to choose this random place. It's, oh, it's not supposed to go here. It's supposed to go there when you, it's just, it's a mess. And I look at something like Gitbook and think, here's a tool that a lot of people could use where it's, it's intuitive to anybody who could use the computer who can write and get in there and help make edits and changes without the pain and experience that so many distros put you through to try to edit their documentation. So I hope a lot of those companies that I, I know a lot of developers listen to us at least take a look at it and see what Gitbook's doing because it's pretty impressive, the simplicity of it. Yeah. And there's also an example, like when you're talking about making it more easy to use and easy to contribute to documentation and that sort of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of projects that look at like wiki and wiki systems and, you know, like those are simple, but those actually aren't that simple, especially considering that they have their own custom language that a person who wants to contribute has to learn how to use it. And while, you know, it is a very popular thing in like Wikipedia, it's a huge plat platform and people understand how to use it as con consuming the data and information. Contributing to it is not that popular. So also consider not using wikis either. That'd be great. Please. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We hit 200 episodes and we did that because of you, the community. You have been with us when we had like, we were excited about 500 downloads and then a thousand downloads and then 10,000 downloads and then 40,000 downloads. And it just is keep going and going. For some reason, you keep coming back and we love you for it. You for all of the support, <laughs> seriously, for 200 episodes of this show. If you want more DL, you could become a patron. We have all these beautiful faces here with us right now. They get to partake in the show and watch all of the conversations and things that happen before and after the show. And if you become a patron, you also get unedited versions of the show in case you can't make it with us live every Sunday. We do this show here. You get VIP access to events uh, as well. So you can come hang out and talk with the crew. And are you a member of the DLN community? You know, yeah, you, the one watching the podcast right now live mm -hmm. on the stream. Have you, you. joined the DLN community? <laughs> we appreciate you listening, but there's also a whole other part of the Destination Linux network. And if you're not in it, then you're truly missing out on a great experience. In fact, we've recently bridged our Matrix, Telegram, and Discord communities all into a single DLN chativerse. Or Ooh. that's what I'm calling it now. Ooh. We also have an awesome forum that is directly integrated with all sorts of stuff, such as comments on frontpagelinux.com and so much more. So go to destinationlinux.network slash community and join the thousands of other community members discussing open source, Linux, and everything else. And also, thanks to the Jetiverse system, you can now enjoy a conversation on whatever platform you want. And everyone out there. Do you realize how many absolutely amazing shows are now part of the Destination Linux network? If you didn't, then let me just name a few. We have our new pseudo show, Your Home for All Things Enterprise Open Source. The incredibly informative Ask Noah show. You can catch Noah live every Tuesday. This Week in Linux, Michael covers all the latest Linux news. And you can watch it live on Saturdays now. <laughs> and the DOS Geek channel. Make sure to watch Ryan's last Fedora 33 video. His yeah. passion and enthusiasm might just get you to convert to Fedora. It did for me. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was excellent. And DLN Extend. Take conversations, take conversations from the DLN community. 
your heart, your computer hardware on with Hardware Addicts. We have a new show coming, which we talked about earlier in this episode, Game Sphere by Chris Ware. So looking forward to that. And it rhymes. So I mean, how could rhymes. you not subscribe? Exactly. <laughs> just from the just from the rhyme, you should subscribe. <laughs> so go to destinationlinux.network and subscribe to all these shows to get these penguin to get those penguins marching and the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. <laughs> I love it. All right, everybody, have a great week and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thank you for two hundred episodes, everyone. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thanks. Oh, yeah. We'll see you next week for another episode too. Two hundred and one. Wait, we don't stop. We're gonna have. We're gonna keep going. Two hundred and one is coming. This is it. This is the. Oh.